Not one, not two, but three companies started by today's guests, if my count is up to date. Welcome back to the show. This is B is for Business, where I, your host, John Jickey Bison, sit down with entrepreneurs, founders, and inventors, those who shape our culture and industries. Thanks for listening. There was a great uh, commercial series back in the 2000s from Dos Equis called The Most Interesting Man in the World. I feel like that title fits our guest today pretty well. From singing and playing instruments to starting schools to sharing philosophical concepts, Sean always has a great story to tell. Our guest today is Sean Garvey. Sean wanted to go solo from early in his career, and he hasn't looked back ever since. After starting out in IT, Sean went on to found multiple companies within the IT and data management industries. He has sold multiple companies, including a company to IBM. Sean now assists businesses in various stages of maturity reach and exceed their corporate goals through virtual advisory services. It's a great episode, ladies and gentlemen. Sit back and enjoy. You make this rather snappy, won't you? I have some very heavy thinking to do before 10 o'clock. Welcome, Sean Garvey. So you went from graduating from a small liberal arts school, we share the same alma mater, uh, to being in the highly technical realm of IT and data management, uh, which are seemingly at opposition to each other in discipline. Um, How did you make that transition and what went into that? Well, a lot of luck, um, a lot of right time, right place, uh, meeting good people and taking advantage of opportunities that happen to come my way. My classmate and good friend, Steve O'Keefe, and I got a job in the pre.com, dot-com world, so early 90s. Um, and we were doing something very mundane, like editing electronic documents and comparing them to their paper version to make sure they were correct. And... Uh, I think we were getting paid the princely sum of 10 bucks an hour, 24,000 a year or something. And um, they noticed that we could think, um, I don't know how they did that. I think we came up with some way to make it faster or something. Um, And said, hey, would you, you know, we're understaffed in the IT department. Would you like to get trained and help us out there? We're like, yeah, sure. so that was how we got into the technical realm. Um, and like I said, a lot of, a lot, I mean, there's no plan for that, right? It was not um, me s- sitting down and thinking big thoughts about how I'm going to break into the, the world of IT. And that happened to be a very good time to do that because it, in the early 90s, it was, you know, the the explosion of the distributed systems and all of that stuff. So got in at the bottom floor of a revolution I didn't even know was coming. Um, so yeah, a lot of pretty much good luck and then taking advantage of opportunities. Yeah, and I think your story is a great story because of the timing in which you entered. Um, and then you, and I think you and Steve O'Keefe, uh, went on to 
found, co-found multiple companies um, in that world. Did you ever foresee yourself as an eventual business owner? Or do you think that kind of just kind of happened with um, the progression of things? Yeah. Um, so I started my first company, the later 90s, so 97, I think, right when I was getting married. And um, I all I knew at that point was that I, I thought I wanted to work for myself because I have a pretty pronounced problem with authority and always have. So I was like, oh, I'd be a great boss. Um, and I was just dumb enough to to think I could do it. And I wasn't wrong. Like, sorry, I was dumb enough to think I could do it, but I had no idea what doing it meant. I think the wisest thing, the best assessment I made of the situation was it was a, it was a great time to take that risk because I was in a spot where, you know, even if I failed spectacularly, I could get a job the next day, you know? So the, the, I was not stepping out into this incredible, uh, you know, risky situation. Sorry about the dog. My, um, my, you know, I was pretty safe and, and I had a wife who was, was raised by an entrepreneur herself and was like, yeah, now's the time to do it. We don't have kids. Like, why don't you give it a shot? But other than that, I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, and, and probably that was to the good because if I had known, I may not have done it. You know what I mean? So sometimes ignorance p- plays to your advantage. Like most things in life, because I was dumb enough to try it, I was lucky enough to be able to learn. Right. So, uh, I made a lot of mistakes, um, almost all of them, as far as I can tell, um, about what not to do. Just, you know, I didn't think about the exit. I didn't think about operating agreements. I didn't think about what happens when everyone's mind changes. I just didn't think about a lot of stuff. So um, luckily I got through that without anybody getting hurt, um, made a little money. Um, but at that point had the bug. I was like, Ooh, I, I think I do like this. Um, and I think I do want to do this and now I want to do it right. So that was my first company. It was only lasted two and a half years. Um, but it looks great on the resume cause I sold right before the crash of the dot-com bubble. So I look like a genius. Um, but again, that was all just lucky timing. Um, and uh, I sold in a way that I could keep all the clients. I sold to a client. I sold the company to eBay, um, which was one of the only companies that made it out of the dot-com um, disaster and is still around them and Amazon. And uh, a lot of people got to go and have a great career at eBay. I got to stay, keep the employees who didn't want to go and the clients that I developed uh, and start fresh. And that's when Steve and I started the second company because he was becoming available. And that was, uh, that was fun. That started in mid early 2000, I think. You sold your first company and then you and Steve started then another company. What do you think was sort of the secret sauce in both of those companies uh, that made it attractive uh, to buyers? Well, like I said, and for the first company, I had no idea other than I wanted to work for myself. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't think about an exit. I didn't think about what was attractive. In the second company, we were far more deliberate um, because I had learned a lot about what not to do. So we did think about those things. And I think the the key with with the second company, Novus, was um, we we had just lived through a dot com bubble bursting. So we wanted to make sure that we were building a company that would be truly valuable. I don't know, you're far too young to know anything about the dot com, but back then, if you could fog a mirror and hang a, a cool looking sign, you could raise tons of money, like mm-hmm. just overnight, right? Uh, whatever you wanted to call it, right? Pavement.com. Okay, sounds great. Here's $300 million. Um, but a lot of investor wealth was wasted because there were just paper tigers facing this kind of fantastic multiple about the dot com, right? So it didn't really matter what you did. So anyway, coming out of that, we were like, we want to be debt free. We want to be truly valuable. We want to build a company that is awesome to work for and that never has to sell. That was one big thing. We never wanted to be in a position where we had to sell. And that could happen if you design your company. If you build it to sell, you, you can end up in a position where you have to sell and you don't want to. Anyway, that's another story. And we just had a certain ethos about like the way we wanted it to be structured. So early on, we were like, we want everyone that works here to have some sort of ownership stake, whether you were answering the phones or whatever. We want, you know, so we had an you know, options pool and... If you signed on, you you were you know you were part of the the game, the, the team, whatever. So we had this kind of like everyone's in for a penny, in for a pound, and we want to grow, and we we want you to grow with us. That I think was very attractive um, as far as attracting talent, like people to come on board, and that's that's a big part of any business, right? You want to you want to make it as exciting for them as it is for you. Um, uh, and then two, we were very deliberate about the space we were going to inhabit. We were, we were going to do enterprise, what's called now, nowadays big data, but it was kind of before those days. It was enterprise storage back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went, we wanted to be a mile deep and an inch wide. Right. right. Um, and that helped us build a lot of expertise. Um, we kind of became, our tagline was we were the expert. expert. Um, so that helped us differentiate quite a bit. And then I think the last thing that really helped turn the corner for us on the sale, as far as attracting to the buyer who ultimately bought us, was um, we we had kind of a firm belief that Consulting companies in general did two things well. They generated intellectual capital very well, and they squandered it even better. <laughs> we didn't want to do that. We wanted to capture whatever intellectual capital we could just in the doing of the work we were doing and pay attention to what where the market was going and try, if we could, to productize and monetize that intellectual capital. And I think that was a big differentiator. So the company that bought us ultimately um, in the end of 2007 was IBM. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from a revenue perspective, we were a drop in the bucket for them, right? They're a hundred billion dollar company. We were, we were not. But what they, 
and frankly, all of our clients, they they already worked with, right? At least in some capacity, because they're IBM, right? They sell to mm-hmm. everybody. But what they very much liked was the core strength we had built, and then the concept of productizing services. Like, so how do you capture and make repeatable what is typically to a human person? Does that make sense? Right. So, right. It wasn't just that we had all the best experts, but they were they were writing down and scripting and coding what they could about what they did so that other people could do it. You know what I mean? So that that was I think ultimately what what caught their eye. Yeah, so um since you mentioned IBM, I'm gonna skip ahead to a couple questions about that. Sure. Um so when you guys were bought by IBM, I believe that's around like five years after like Lou Gerstner's tenure as CEO yeah. of IBM, mm-hmm. and he publishes "Who Said Elephant Can't Elephants Can't Dance." Right. It's a big turnaround time for IBM, and they're kind of on the rise back up. Do you feel like the way you were doing things uh, were kind of aligned to what IBM was trying to evolve to be uh, and become? Yes and no. Mm-hmm. So, so we had I had been partnering with IBM even in my first company. Um, okay, and we had been partnering with them again in the second company. So I had kind of seen what Lou Gerstner had pulled off at IBM. It, it was very bleak in the mid nineties. You know, it's hard to imagine a hundred billion dollar company having trouble making payroll, but that's kind of where they were. Um, and he, what he did there was amazing. And yeah, so the yes part of the answer is at that point, they were trying to transform IBM Global Services, which was about 50% of their total revenue made up of IBM Global, GTS, Global Technical Services, and GBS, which was their acquisition. Oh, what was that? Pricewater? Anyway, one of the big. They, they bought one of the big five consultants. So they were trying to productize their service offerings because okay. IBM really, they operate, it looks like one IBM to us, but in reality, every company has its own operating company. The, uh, sorry, every country has its own operating So IBM Spain right. is different than IBM Ireland, is different than IBM Italy. And they had all this service product proliferation everywhere. Nobody did anything the same way. There was no way to do quality control. There was no way to do scale. They were entirely dependent on staff. Um, they had no uh, visibility into profitability of the offerings. Um, no way to move it. If they if they got a good one, say in IBM Italy, the chances were, if it could fit in another country, they couldn't figure out how to make it fit. Does that make sense? So right. it was all just custom, custom, custom all the way down, and they were trying to fix that. So in that sense, it was very fortuitous because that's a big part of what we were doing. We yeah, also you guys were trying to capture the yeah. actual property of what you were doing, and that went yeah. into a patent, right? Yeah, we did get a, a process patent, yep, um, on, okay. on uh, one of our offerings. Um, so that did intersect, you know, and I don't know how much trouble you want to get into, but... Um, <laughs> I think Lou, sometimes the, the cure ends up being worse than the disease. So, um, 
what Gerstner did was he he brought order to IBM, and they sorely needed it, right? No doubt. But by the time they were stopping around the mid 2000s, home years later, right? Um, they were buying a ton of companies. Basically, their route to growth was we are going to acquire our way to growth. And they kept buying and buying and buying. And like every, every division was buying. And we were one of those acquisitions, but they still couldn't grow. Like they just couldn't grow. And when I tell you that they had a very, very thorough acquisition process, just believe me, it was unbelievable. The, I'm pretty sure the due diligence team at IBM was larger than my entire company. Like it was, <laughs> and, and we, and this was for a, a relatively, for their, you know, in their world, a relatively small. So anyway, what what ended up what I ended up learning when we got inside was that IBM had essentially put the accountants and the lawyers in charge. So so there was no possibility of there, there were no the, the they had how do I say this they had successfully changed the pH balance within IBM to make innovation possible. So you. Could not, you couldn't innovate. You couldn't start small, test it, expand it, refine it, then go. Like if you, if you weren't big right out of the box with your service, you didn't get any buy-in because nobody thought they were going to make your number. So that incented you to make your offering more expensive because then it would get the, uh, the attention of your sellers. But then by that point, the market wouldn't touch it because the money was just there. Yeah. So that's just one. It's a very low risk uh, approach. They had no no risk, no risk tolerance. So so that's what I mean by the accountants and the lawyers being in charge. So and there's one more anecdote. You can cut this whole part out if you think you're going to get in trouble. (laughs) But um, I was part of a group called Acquired CEOs. Like it was a big group because they were buying companies, and they would bring us up to New York every quarter or so and have a think tank kind of whatever and go out to a fancy dinner and the question was why do you guys keep leaving like why why do you keep we buy you we love what you did we love your companies we love your ideas we love but then we buy you and you leave and so that just gives you an example of the scale of the problem like they they could not they had all this talent that had done amazing things outside of IBM and then as soon as they were in IBM they could do nothing and then they would leave. So it's um and I do put some of that at the turnaround Gerstner made. It may not be his fault directly, but the regime he put in, in charge was absolutely and rightly so at the time about mitigating and eliminating risk, which is just antithetical to growth or innovation. That's a little side story. Well, no, I think it's good to to uncover kind of those those processes. A lot of people are involved in um, in acquisitions, and I think it also goes to company culture, which I want to get into next. Um, mm-hmm. The culture is, you know, you want to have a culture where people can feel like they can innovate, take risk. Um, I read in an article you once said culture is the most important and most neglected asset a company has. Um, yeah. And I guess I want to put another spin on that. In our current um, 
society, I guess. There's a wide diversity of values, um, a hesitancy to express clear values. Um, in your guys' experience, how did you inculcate values in the company's culture? How are you seeing that done now? Um, is there certain overarching values um, that kind of supersede those difficulties? Um, is like just trying to be innovative one that can kind of uh, cut across? Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, yeah, I, and I do. Were you quoting me there? Because I like that quote. Did I say that? Yeah, I was. Yeah, you did say oh, that. Oh, cool. Cool. It's a good way to make the guests feel good if you just quote them. <laughs> yeah, no, good. Well, well done. Well done. But that is true. Culture, culture is something. It can be your greatest asset, or it can kill you. Um, and a lot of people don't think about it. Um, how do you inculcate culture? I think it starts with remembering that you know human resources, which is the euphemism, is their people. Number one. <laughs> so they mm-hmm. have um, they have all the typical um, strengths and weaknesses and incentives and uh, you know they're people they're not just you know salary items on a on a spreadsheet or right. whatever um, and so the better your understanding of the human person the better culture you're going to be able to create. The better fit, if that makes sense. Um, so uh, for us, that took the shape of, and you know, some of this might not be uh, feasible anymore. We prided ourselves on having very, very rich um, benefits, right? I think we, we early on, we Paid 100% everything for healthcare. Um, we really, really wanted to for people to excuse me feel taken care of um, and be taken care of. We we also tried to inculcate performance based bonuses, so people were incented to go above and beyond. Uh, and some of that above and beyond was innovation. Like if you didn't submit any ideas, they didn't have to be great ideas, but you had to submit something. And that mm-hmm. was part of how you earned into your corporate price, uh, profit. Bonus. So, um, and then the, the other thing for me, and you know, there, I'm sure there are a million questions, but people like to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Um, so, Having a big, hairy, audacious goal, or, you know, as Jim Collins calls it, but like having something that we're like, we are going to be, you know, we may be small, but we are mighty, right? And we are going right. to, we're going to be what we do in this space. No one's going to, that's going to take a lot of work on everyone's part, but they like, people respond to that far more than they do to money, funnily enough. There's a great Harvard Business Review uh, article from many, many years ago that, um, I can't find for the life of me, but I can look it up. Anyway, it's made the point that money is a reason to be dissatisfied at work, but it isn't a contributor to satisfaction at work. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. So so if you're not getting paid enough or you don't feel valued, you're going to gripe about the money. But at some point, the money isn't the point. Like you want to be doing something that's bigger beyond yourself, whether it's helping your your peers or your other departments or the company at large or something you got to have 
you gotta have something meaningful to do. Even if you know, I'm not talking, you know, spirit of eternity and meaningful. There, there's that aspect too, but just like something bigger than, you know, I get up and I do the same thing. Yeah, and I think people like being part of, you know, the underdog story. Um, everyone roots for that. Um, I think it's also kind of ingrained, uh, which is a very positive thing into the American culture where, mm-hmm. um, I don't think you see it as much, um, and maybe like European culture, um, but that people really do want to have to be part of the fight to like distinguish themselves, um, and be part of something bigger as you spoke to. Yeah. So I want to, you are, you're taking the knowledge you cultivated through building companies, um, selling those companies, and now uh, you're using it to help other companies mature, be the best version of themselves. Um, What do you feel like you are providing that's maybe differentiated um, from other kind of strategic consultants and advisors um, in the market? I don't know if I'm able to differentiate myself entirely, but that's because I just don't know a lot of what people do versus what they say they do. Right. What I what I try to provide, um, which is a good distinction, by the way. Um, there might be a lot of people who say they provide a certain thing in the market, um, and part of that differentiation might be actually providing that. Um, so the, I, I'll give that to you. There's a there's always a nice gap between the architecture and the architecture. <laughs> um, the, what I try to focus on is um, the, the raw material, you know, of what I provide is, um, let me just sum it up, it's just what not to do, like, which is the most valuable information in the world. So, mm-hmm. So helping people not make mistakes, helping them avoid mistakes because they don't have to be made, um, is the, really the root, the root of what I try to get across to people. Um, or the most basic. The 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 other thing I think that makes a good consultant or an effective consultant is helping the person, the founder, express what they ultimately want to achieve. And that may sound weird, but a lot of people, especially people with a you know, a bias toward action and activity, they don't oftentimes they don't take the time to step back and be like, okay, where do I want this thing to go? And why do I want it to go there? And what do I want it to look like when it's there? You know what I mean? What 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 does life look like when I'm done, when I succeed? Easy to do the what's wrong with things like I want it to be. I keep losing key people, whatever. Like, we're very familiar with pain and are pretty good at putting our finger on expressing it, right? At least our interpretation of it. Um, but we very rarely then couple it with, okay, well, what would that be if you, if you had a magic wand, what would it look like, right? Like, what would, what would that be comprised of? And then, and then helping them break down kind of a, Step by step. Okay, if you want to build Rome, or if you want to whatever you want to do, and given where you are today, these are the order. These are the steps you should take, and this is the order in which you should try to take them. Some of that might be more research. 
Some of that might be modeling different things. Some of them might be, but it depends, right? Obviously, there's an right, right. infinite number of things. And the reason that the order of steps is important is because ultimately, consultants can't save you. That's one of the reasons why we picked Virgil Advisory as a company name currently, because Virgil can only get them, you know, poor hell and get them through purgatory. But it's up to, <laughs> there's another, <laughs> you have to get yourself to heaven, right? So, right. Um, so plans and new models and compensation, whatever, it has to be rolled out in a way that the ownership can can adopt it and make it their own. And then ultimately the organization can do that too. It's a very organic thing. Whereas if I just come in, look at the numbers, look, interview people, map the new thing, it's perfect. Let's pretend it's perfect. This is exactly how you're going to become a billion dollar company. It won't necessarily take you know it's like a kidney transplant like right. if your body rejects it okay perfect kidney doesn't matter you know what i mean so right and then also having the flexibility to be as light touch or as heavily involved as, as they see indeed you know what i mean um i think a lot of the large larger firms don't have luxury, right? they have a way of engaging you must engage their way or they can't take you on as a client. So because I'm fairly independent, I, I can be as light touch or as heavily involved as the situation and the client would like. Yeah, so I, I coach rugby, and I, I think I often say uh, to the players that I'll give you the structure uh, in which to be successful, uh, but ultimately they have to be creative within that structure, and it's up to them to flourish within that structure. Um, yeah. I think that has some nice ties to what you're saying. Uh, in terms yeah. of what you can do for the end client. So I'm going to move on to uh, a quick segment, and then we'll get to our final question. I call this mm. segment, quote on a quote. I'm going to give you a quote, um, and then you just kind of give me your thoughts on it. So the quote is from Ludwig von Mises. Mm. In a game, there are winners and losers, but a business deal is always advantageous for both parties. Yeah, um, that is very true. Most people think of business deals as a zero-sum game, and that is, I think, probably the cause of not only a lot of uh, dissatisfaction, but also a lot of, ironically, a lot of dissatisfaction, even when uh, it's a good deal. Do you know what I mean? Like you, right. You you can be misery is a choice. Like. So <laughs> if you think that 100% is your fair share, or you think that people should pay you for something that isn't there yet, but you know in your brain it's going to be there someday if somebody pays you a lot of money, then you, you're never going to be happy um, with no matter what happens. Um, but that's a choice. You, you make that choice. So, yeah, they could be mutually beneficial. Um, uh, but a lot of that is the mindset, right? You gotta, you gotta see it right. that way. So good old Ludwig is the man. <laughs> so to get to our final question, yeah. um, for a person who believes they have a vision for a compelling company or product, uh, what would your advice for them, uh, for the first step they can take? Oh, wow. Research. Talk, like mm -hmm. talk to everyone you know that is smart or you think is smart and um, just stay teachable. Like it's probably a good idea. Um, 
it may not be realizable for a variety of factors that have nothing to do with the goodness of the idea. Um, but you want to know that as soon as possible. And one key thing to think about is, okay, I have this idea for a product or a service or whatever that needs the company to make it real. Who is, who is going to buy it? And a lot of people don't think about that when they're thinking of a really neat I don't mean are they going to pay in quite their credit card. I mean, who's the market and how do they buy? And it often determines a ton about what the product ends up looking like. Hmm. And knowing that sooner, you know, what you don't want to do is put a ton of R&D, even if it's on your own time, and then find out that you have, you know, you've bottled Ambrosia, but nobody can, you know, you can't yeah, but the first one's way more important. Just keep keep noodling and keep talking. Keep thinking about it. Because essentially an idea for a company or a product is a hypothesis. And you want to right. test that hypothesis as thoroughly as possible. You wanna avoid smoking your own crap. You wanna <laughs> you wanna you want every mean, curmudgeonly old dude like me to tell you, you know, five ways it can't happen so that you can figure out how it can Right. Um, right, right. So when you talk to people, don't expect, you know, if you go in thinking like, boy, I can't wait till this old smart guy tells me how smart I am. Like you, you want him to tell you how stupid you are. That's what you want. Well, I not think that's really. great advice. But you, you, no, want, I, you want him to tell you what you haven't thought of. That, that's a better way to do it. nicer way to put it. Well, it helps sharpen the idea um, and the vision. Yeah. Um, you don't want someone to give it the big thumbs up. Um, it's not very actionable. Um, so I think that's great advice. Um, and I really want to thank you for coming on the show, um, and sharing kind of your experience. It's great history to kind of learn about and a great era for people who are entering the market today, learning about, uh, the beginning of a lot of the businesses we see flourishing now and you know, how those came to be. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for asking me on. Thanks for listening to BS for business. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend and giving us a rating on wherever you're listening. To connect with us, like and share on Instagram at B is for Business Show or LinkedIn or Facebook at B is for Business. Have a great Monday, everyone.
Thanks for listening to B is for Business. Intro music is by The Revolution. Outro music is by Reveal. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent. B is for Business is a trademark of Bison LLC. Remember to like, subscribe, and share B is for Business across all platforms. Thank you.